On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamish and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophy, observations and theories, what works for us, and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. So we're joined today by Kevin Patterson, uh, who is the author of the book, Love is Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. Along with co-writer Alana Phelan, Kevin also launched a sci-fi novel series for hire. The series centers characters of color as well as other marginalized identities. Kevin also runs the blog Poly Role Models, an interview series for people describing their experiences with polyamory. Poly Role Models is part of a drive and a desire to change the way our lives and communities are viewed. It's currently the most diverse and inclusive platform for polyamory available. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's good to see your faces again, really. (laughs) It is our pleasure. Yeah, we realized it's, I think it's been three years since, uh, or, you know, two and a half since we've had you on the podcast. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Very happy to be chatting again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah. What, do you want to summarize the last three years of your life? <laughs> um, well, I went to lunch and... <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is this could be a long summary. Um, well, I mean, in in the three years since uh, since launching um, Love's Not Colorblind, it's been, it's been sort of a whirlwind. Um, where like Love's Not Colorblind came out, and then I think maybe the last time I might have seen either of you in person was um, during the book tour, um, in in Vancouver maybe I don't know. Um, it was I think it's Six Down South. Okay. Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, but like I ended up going like I ended up uh, going to something like fifteen different cities, twenty something different times. I went to like places like New York and DC multiple times um and then after that i started working on the the book series for uh for hire which was which was something that i had initially planned on doing nothing with like love's not Colorblind <laughs> was kind of a difficult thing to write where you have, i had to delve into a lot of racism and like a lot of like shady stuff from like uh shady stuff that i had to deal with in my past and right. it was it wasn't always it wasn't always a walk in the park so like at some point i started writing about superheroes and it was just um it was just something to get my mind out of that negative space and i didn't intend for anyone to actually uh, read any of it until after love's not colorblind released i started talking with my friend alana and she and i went and uh reworked some of the superhero stuff that i wrote and it turned into this the for hire series yeah uh, that's awesome i uh i've just started reading the most recent one um because it sort of came out you know while the world was in chaos and uh i kind of missed it and was like <laughs> shit <laughs> i gotta get on this so yeah i'm, I'm really excited to, and especially that it's uh, a prequel diving back into to characters already uh know so that's really awesome yeah yeah like it was because the first thing that i wrote was actually two parts like uh i started by talking about you know a pair of young women who meet in their teens and sort of build their own way to superhumanity by way of technology and 
and then like there's a time skip and they're adults and we get the entire adventure of them trying to like um fight a shadow government and when Alana looked at it she was like Kev your book starts in chapter 11 <laughs> you know the first 10 chapters them meeting and doing tech that's all backstory like the real story doesn't start until you get to chapter 11 so we created for higher operator with that in mind so we ended up taking chapters 11 through like 20 turning it into for higher operator and making it into like we we fluffed out we fluffed out the story we were able to find ways to to make you care about characters without 10 chapters of uh of backstory uh there there to uh to sort of get you started and that sort of thing and so like the difficult part for writing the third book was that now we had to go back and change what was essentially 10 chapters of backstory into like its own separate adventure like those first 10 chapters didn't really have a plot other than these two people meet they get a group of friends and they you know and they create fantastic technology so that's that's not enough to carry a book so we had to find a way to make right it was, like, it was primary world building when you first wrote it and now it's like we actually need to have story driving through this this uh, exposition exactly exactly so like the 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 first was world the first half was world building without a plot and the second half was a plot without world building (laughs) (laughs) yeah and but the but the the uh the the first novel operator um the uh it's um it it drove forward really well without having um all of all of that that uh world building backfilled it's like it's uh you you just kind of pick it up in the in the middle of things um you know how uh, how much of the uh was of the latest was already written in terms of the percentage of the book um of that of you know of that that world building compared to uh you know uh adding the the story thread that goes through it i mean uh, it was a lot less like say right. with with operator we already knew where the characters were going we knew what the story was going to be we had to find a way to make people care about those characters by sort of data mining the first half of the book now this now that we're back in the first half of the book which is uh supercell we had to find a, a, a the whole narrative thread of it didn't exist before it was it was more like I'd say maybe twenty five percent of of a uh, of supercell is is previous content from like the the initial draft. Whereas right. with operator, it was more like two thirds of it was stuff we already had, and the other third was was uh, was stuff we 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 put in to make it like a, a readable thing. Like the the analogy I always use is that like. I've got friends. I I've got friends who could rap. I got friends who could freestyle, and like if you just put on a beat and give them any topic, they could just flow off the top of their head for hours and hours and hours. Whereas I know I know song structure better than they do. So while they could like spit for for hours, if they wanted to put out a song, I'd have to say like, hey, this is how you chop it up into three you know three verses, sixteen bars of verse with a chorus, so that people will actually listen to it. As opposed to, you know, a three-minute song rather than hours of freestyle. <laughs> and that's that's sort of the relationship that Atlanta and I have. 
I can, you know, I can come up with all sorts of stories. I can come up with all sorts of, you know, narratives and motivations and characters and superpowers and all that stuff. But Elena helps me turn it into something that someone might actually sit down and read because she understands narrative structure better than I do. She understands, you know, what makes a good book better than I do. Elena reads hundreds of books every year. It's, it's pretty incredible. So, um, the first time the the first time around with operator it was just trying to figure out a way to make you care about characters that no longer had 10 chapters of backstory dedicated to them and this it was more like we've got to find a way to put, we've got to we've got to create a plot we've got to find a way to make it fit into what you already know about these characters we've got to find a way to fit like every flashback every previous reference in operator has to be played out in a way that's visible in Supercell without making it seem like it's just a bunch of... Like, you ever see that movie Solo, the Star Wars movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like, it was just back-to-back fan service over and over and over. Like, this is how we met Chewbacca. This is how we got the Millennium Falcon. This is where the dice come from. This is where this comes from. This is where that comes from. We had to find a way to do that without making it feel like like we were puking fan service all over you. <laughs> For sure. And I know that um, when I've taken like short story courses and stuff, they sort of say like, you know, you write the story and then delete at least the three first three paragraphs um, because we tend to do too much of that, like, you know, front loading backstory. Um, and it's and it is more interesting to kind of dive into the action. Yeah. Yeah. And like, this one, like, but both uh, both Operator and Supercell were so much easier to write than Audition. Whereas Audition, we didn't have anything going uh, leading into it. It was just, I had gone to a Beyonce and Jay-Z concert, and I saw Beyonce doing amazing stuff with a fake ponytail. And I, <laughs> and I created a whole story in my head about that fake story, about that, about that ponytail. And that essentially ended up turning into um for higher audition and oh that's amazing yeah and the whole the whole writing process of that book was alana and i just arguing and arguing and arguing and eventually getting some stuff down on the page and like we argued every single point of that book and like going back and looking at it i actually love it like i it was such a difficult process that i didn't like the book so much when it when i when when we first put it out but then, like, every once in a while, I'd pick it up and I'd look through a chapter and I'd be like, wow, actually, this is okay. I can even really like <laughs> this. I'm glad, we, I'm glad we did this. Yeah, maybe the, the fact that it, it, was, uh, it was harder work um, has, has a, you know, a little bit of underlying resentment to it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it turns out that, um, the, you know, the, the, the product was better than the process. Yeah, 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 and it it wasn't until like somebody uh, like a, a, a somebody messaged me, uh, I think like on Instagram or somewhere to tell me that they liked Audition so much better than they liked Operator, and my first thought was like, but how? How do you? How, <laughs> you know? And then like they 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 brought up a, they brought up something about it that they liked, and I was like, yeah, we actually did kind of nail that. And then I'd go back and like look through it, um, like. You know, bits and pieces. I'd pick it up to to make sure I got a reference proper for uh, for Supercell, and I'd find myself reading a couple of chapters, and it's like, actually, no, we we did well with this, and I'm I'm happy this went the way that it went. What a backhanded compliment, though. I like <laughs> I like this a lot better than your last one. You're like, but I love that one. What's your problem? 
I mean, the 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 the, the only real critic the only real criticisms we got from um from for operator was that like the main our main character Sana some people didn't feel like she was proper representation for introverts which I get mm. that like I'm I'm not a, I'm not an introvert myself so that's not always something I'm gonna get 100% right and one guy one guy uh, emailed Atlanta to say that there were too many feelings in it like <laughs> <laughs> like as a like, you know as a cis man I feel like there's too much focus on their feelings i was like wow okay buddy thanks for that <laughs> yeah well it's it's funny you know talking about like going back and reading it i've just been um doing the audiobook for uh waking up polyamorous yeah which came which came out like several years ago and i eventually just gave up and hired someone to do it and i've been listening to her reading it and like I, you know, I have the worst memory in the world. Um, and you know, I'd forgotten most of it. So, you know, it's kind of as much of a surprise to me <laughs> as yeah. I'm listening to it as it is to anybody else. Like, Oh, what happens next? Um, but, but occasionally I'm just like, wow, like, I love this bit. Like go me, you know, because it just like you, you have these sort of moments that, it's a good that you really, have. yeah, you, you see that, um, you know, getting sucked into your own story is is kind of is kind of awesome. Yeah, like and like the 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 world the world is fucked up. We don't give ourselves enough chances to like appreciate the good things, even the good things that we do for ourselves, the good things that we put out into the world. A lot of it feels like like shouting into the void. So like just being able to stop and appreciate yourself from time to time that's that's a good look. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, you're. Uh, your books are pretty horny and uh <laughs> I, like does so does does the uh does the dirty stuff come up organically or do you like sort of like uh you know what um there needs to be more boning i think i'm gonna um you know have so-and-so hook up with uh, with this person you know so uh or or you know how how does that work um, I'm I'm actually kind of bashful about some of that stuff, um, <laughs> which is weird because I'm 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 the opposite of that in real life. Like I I feel weird about putting it on page. Um, Alana wrote some of the sexier stuff because um, because I I didn't want to be awkward while doing it. <laughs> there is a whole sex club scene in um an operator that is almost untouched from the original draft that I wrote like while while doing Love's Not Colorblind. Uh and that's that's one of my favorite chapters of the whole thing. Like I, I like where it goes. I like what it does. I I like the pic the picture that it paints and and like it it is pretty horny and also like it takes them it takes time out to spell out consent and like proper yes. proper etiquette. Which a yes. lot of sex club stuff doesn't do even in re- real life sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean it's it's common in sexy fiction to, you know, uh kind of just uh pave over the the stuff that that uh isn't considered sort of directly sexy. Um, you know, but for uh for a lot of us the sort of the added realism and, you know, and and kind of uh, 
disambiguating the consent issues of the scene actually uh, makes it hotter and sort of uh, kind of the uh, it gets rid of that sort of uh, discord you sometimes have when you're reading sex scenes. And you're like, oh, you know, what what about barriers? What you know, why didn't they? Talk about this before they you know, they it's dove in. It's shockingly easy mm-hmm. to do, and also shockingly easy to forget. Um, where like so, there's going like with that sex club scene. There's a point where where a, a character that's being watched um, decides to jump into a threesome. Like it, there's a twosome already happening, and she decides, "I'd like to make this a threesome for a bit." And I wanted to be able to spell out that she had the ability to do that. She, you know, that she, she had the sort of charisma, the, 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 the ability to just jump into this. But I was like, but consent needs to be on the page. And it was just as simple as writing, you know, she said something to these two fellas, they nodded, she took off her clothes. Like it's, it was that easy to spell out consent. Whereas forgetting it, you know, forgetting it like i could have really easily just let that go and then somebody would have messaged me to say what happened to your kev and and (laughs) you know like just something as simple as writing there was a bowl of condoms on you know there was a bowl of condoms nearby that you know all of a sudden safer sex is spelled out in a way that um that like doesn't break the doesn't break the uh, the narrative immersion doesn't break any tension built in the scene or anything like that doesn't kill the mood but that's but real life can be just as simple that way. Like you can have like safer sex conversations without breaking the mood and 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 still, you know, you can you can make it sexy if you want to. Yeah, and as you, you know, talking about representation so often, like that is, you know, for those of us who are involved in, in some of these scenes and, and really in groups that that do their best to, you know, keep those consent practices up and, and have those discussions. Like, it's so great to be like, yes, that is what, that is what it would look like. And that is how it, it, you know, these are the conversations I would have. And so you feel, you feel seen and, and just how important that is because it is so jarring. I was reading just some vacuous fiction recently and, you know, yeah, the, just like the, you know, constant like his mouth just grabbed hers you know unexpectedly or like you know them just plunging right in and i'm like did you didn't talk about any of this and like where's the condoms and like have have you been tested and you know all that sort of thing you know just yeah yeah. and like like knowing this stuff and like incorporating it in your personal life it, it makes it stand out so starkly in in media when that stuff doesn't exist you know yeah, you know, and and uh, I uh, on the one hand, I think that that uh, you know people do understand sort of the 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 difference between um, you know between fantasy and reality. You know, otherwise, ninety percent of our entertainment would be incredibly irresponsible. Um, but at the same time, um, you know. Uh, the the impact of of narrative fiction on culture matters and so people who aren't exposed to consent culture uh you know in a um you know in a really sort of natural and organic way you know uh something like that could could provoke some some thought and some questions you know mm-hmm. so um it it would be while it would be easy to 
um, you know, to, to, to just kind of, um, you know, hand wave it and be like, you know, it's, it's just a fantasy. This is how these, these things are written. Um, you know, having, having the fantasy, uh, you know, grounded in something that, that, uh, you know, presents something sort of more responsible, I think, um, you know, uh, the, the more that uh, that can be portrayed in our entertainment, the the more that can start to inject into the, the culture as a whole. I mean, it, and it's, it's such a weird space that sex has in our culture um, in that it's like super important, but then also not important at all. Whereas it's important <laughs> yes. to show sexuality, but it's not important enough to like actually get consultants on to not actually ask anybody about. Whereas like if, if somebody puts like you know police in a movie and they don't have a, a police consultant, you know, you're gonna see like really shoddy police work, which is you know there's a lot of questions about what what does and doesn't constitute shoddy police work. <laughs> but we do get like we do get media companies that spend tons of money on like military advisors so that they so that they get the military correct in whatever whatever movie they're doing and even the movies that that aren't about the military whereas when it comes to sex somebody's like well i have sex so i'm just gonna put what i have in in there you know and it's not gonna matter whether or not it's consent based or autonomy based or safe or or risk aware or anything like that and i'm like if you put the kind of effort in that you put into like other aspects of life in terms of getting consultants and experts and you know just talking to people you get a better you get not just better content but also you get better um you get more responsible content you get more responsible conversation you get culture shifts honestly mm-hmm. well and and the uh the the sort of shift in hollywood toward having uh you know intimacy uh consultants yeah. uh you know the um i i i really uh i really appreciate sort of seeing the importance of that in you know the performer's safety in the same way that you have uh you know um stunt people and you know a lot of like uh sort of safety analysis for people's physical safety Mm -hmm. uh you know looking after people's uh you know emotional safety in that context um you know i i think is uh is is really important and i really appreciate you know how much that has become part of uh you know what we what we talk about you know we we have uh, have shows like um it's a big part of the conversation um around what the hell's that that show never mind we'll have to edit that part out <laughs> <laughs> um the the, uh, the netflix show with the the regency era oh bridgerton bridgerton yeah the uh bridgerton there were a lot of articles about the uh um sort of the the intimacy consultants on that mm. and um you know and that's that's a, a hot show yeah there was that was real horny do you ever watch um what was it mad max fury road yeah. yes yeah love yeah. mad max yeah, fury road so, do so, I, much. so do i it's one of, it's, it's a favorite of mine um like they had gotten um, a consultant like i think it was like the the writer for the vagina monologues was a, was a consultant on there Okay. They did such a good job in terms of the portrayal of the women, not just like um, not just Imperator Furiosa, but like of the the wives, and yeah, it it you don't need you don't need a consultant on damsels in distress. So when you have a dis- so when you do have a consultant, they don't 
just come across as damsels, damsels in distress, which is why, yes. which is why their portrayal was like part of the critical success of that movie. You know, they they just they weren't just warm bodies with long hair on on screen, which was what was pretty awesome about it. They were like they were fully immersed and like fully full fledged characters. Yeah, and when you first sort of see them, you 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 know, sense that that's, they probably are going to be the damsel in distress because we're just so used to that. Just yeah, they're, they're just over and over. They're and just, over. Uh, you know, eye, eye candy and yeah. will be treated like props. Yeah, yeah, and you start to see it and it's like, oh, okay, here we go. And then it's like, it, you know, there's, yeah, like the record scratch of like, oh, that is, wow, okay. Um, yeah, they did, they, did a, they did a really good job with that. And still... If that if something as simple as these characters who weren't the main characters of the you know, who weren't the main driving force of the movie, if they could get critical acclaim, they could get praise for their characterization because of the inclusion of a consultant who knew better. You know what? What more can we can we do for that? That's something we ended up doing with um with with uh the for hire books, where there's there's some black woman shit in there that um that we wanted to make sure that we spoke to black women about because neither myself nor Atlanta are one. Um, the main character of of audition is a trans woman, and like there were as a result, like there were areas of storytelling that Alana and I completely avoided because we didn't want to be shitty to trans people, and then also we paid trans trans women uh, as consultants to come in and 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 like look through, make sure that we got the characterization uh, right, and they, and they they appreciate it, and they more importantly they approve before we put anything out. Yeah, and you end up with a much more sort of realistic and relatable um, product because there's that reality, you know, grounded in it. Exactly, exactly, and like you don't you don't want to mess that you don't want to mess that stuff up. Like there's that's not who I want to be. There are a lot of people who there are a lot of people a lot of like, content creators a lot of people who want to just like. Well, this is the story I put out, and if it offends the people that it's about, then you know, screw them. They should stop being so sensitive. And I'm like, that's that's not the kind of person I want to be. That's not the kind of storyteller I want to be. The uh, you know, I've I've had uh, writer friends sort of um, express uncertainty about you know whether it's okay to to have characters that. Uh, that don't represent them, you know, so have, you know, uh, straight white men, whether they have queer uh, characters or characters of color. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't know where sort of your distinction falls, but the, the one that, that I always pass on that, that resonates with me is, um, you know, you should have characters of representation, um, but you shouldn't tell those stories that aren't your stories mm. you shouldn't tell black stories you, you know you if if you're if your character is a gay man um it shouldn't be a story about being a gay man mm. yeah like my like my my take on it uh and i i've i've written about this for uh for spectrum boutique where my take on it is there's like there's universal experiences there's you know there's universal experiences and it's like yeah write those there are experiences that are informed by identity whereas like you know everybody wears clothes that's universal the kind of clothing that i might wear you know between you and i me as a black guy and you as white folks that might differ you might want to get consultants on that so is it so as not to get that wrong 
And then there's the stories that like, then there's the stuff that only exists because of identity, oppression, coming out narratives, you know, very like identity specific stories. You should just avoid those. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the main character, the main character in Audition is a trans woman, but it's not like, it's not a coming out narrative. It's not about her going through trans girl pain and trying to navigate the navigate the world through the oppression that trans folks feel. It's it's about her trying to get her life in order. And then some of her decision-making processes are altered by her being trans. Like some of some of what she's going through is altered by way of trans, uh, uh, by way of her being trans. But it's not like a trans story. She's not dealing with that specifically. That's not the driving force of the narrative. That's not something I would feel comfortable writing because that's something I would 100% get wrong. And I'm not trying to fuck anybody up, especially not people that I that I love and respect. Yeah, for sure. So there's uh, I. There, there's certainly been a lot of shift in terms of uh, the telling of uh, of queer stories um, in you know in in the past uh, you know past decade or so. Your your stories uh, also feature um, uh, telling the stories of uh, uh, um, alternative uh, sexuality, poly, you know, people who are who are non monogamous in particular. Um, what do you think has has shifted around that storytelling in the culture as a whole? I think they're getting better, um, and and uh, some of this is just like my own my own experiences with it. I think they're getting better with with like um, listening and doing better the next time around, right. uh, especially especially in stuff that's geared towards uh, younger audiences. So like we had um like Netflix has a uh, a Voltron show like a Voltron reboot and it's not bad and like they found a way to fit some queer stuff in there and but they found and the way they did it was kind of awkward the way they did it was kind of was kind of forced and then the same deal with um Avatar uh, Legend of Korra where they wanted to do better with the queer stuff that they that they were trying to add into the story but Nickelodeon wouldn't really let them so it comes across a little bit contrived. It comes across a little bit forced. Uh, unfortunately, like it's good characters doing good stuff, but like, but they can't be as overt about it as they want because Nickelodeon has its, has its own set of rules. Whereas now, if you watch like say the dragon prince on Netflix or the, the, the Shira, the, the, Shira, the, the yeah. yeah, Shira. Yeah. Like Shira is 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 four seasons of lesbian angst, and I'm I'm here for all of it. It's really well done, and like there's a few other shows like that. I just finished watching um, Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts. Oh, so good, so good. Yeah. yeah, like I just finished watching the 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 last of it like maybe this morning, and there's a lot of there's a lot of queer stuff that they wouldn't put on on screen but in this they definitely put it on screen they let you know very clearly these characters are not straight and it's like good good do it just like that so it's gonna be you can't you can't go back now after that you can't go back to like hinting and you know hemming and hawing about about the representation not when you've got so many examples of good representation out there well 20 years ago or even 10 years ago you know hinting was often celebrated 
right? Like, so it's like, it's like, look, you know, they, uh, they, they can't actually tell a queer story, but they're, they're, they're signaling to us that these characters are queer. And yep. now it's a criticism, right? It's queer baiting when you mm. have, when you hint, cause it's like, you want the queer people to like your show, but you, you just don't have the guts to actually, uh, queer it up. Yeah. Yeah. And like that, those, those hints, those hints were bullhorns back in the day. But now they're whispers, and we're we're not we're you know once once time has changed, we're not there any we're not there for that anymore. And the other really wonderful thing about like the the shows that you've mentioned as well is like being queer is just just a piece of their identity. Yeah. Um, and they're just like fully formed characters who have you know a lot of internal life and happen to be queer. Um, and so you know, that is so delightful because that is the other thing that was a piece, you know, when you think back to the, you know, Will and Grace and, and that sort of thing that really the only thing that you got in some of those characters was the fact that they were queer and they didn't really have any depth beyond that. Yeah. Like, and when, when people ask me what I've been doing, what I've been working on, like I jokingly say, I've been writing these queer polyamorous superhero books. When the, when the fact of the matter is, the superhero part is the most important part of those, where the narrative is driven by them doing superheroic stuff, you know, like living in a world that allows for that. Whereas them being, you know, the characters being queer or polyamorous or, you know, people of color, those are just parts of, uh, those are parts of the character, but they're not really parts of the narrative. And I'd, I'd rather it be that way. Yeah, it's nowhere near the most interesting thing about these characters exactly exactly like the i get really annoyed by by love triangles in fiction yes <laughs> it's like why don't y'all just fuck yeah yeah like stop like stop stop beating around the bush and just get it in whereas <laughs> whereas like there's a love triangle in operator but the love triangle is like the the conflict of the love triangle isn't the existence of a love triangle yeah. you know every every other piece of media that includes it person a person b person c uh person person a likes person b and person c and that's a conflict and that's the problem because one person likes two other people whereas the conflict in operator is that these three characters who are all into one another not just one person into the two of them but the none of them can share their entire identities with one another what none of them can share every aspect of their lives with one another and that's the conflict not that they're into each other them being into each other is just fine and (laughs) like that's that's sort of where i want these kind of stories to go like going forward where like april ludgate in um in parks and rec you know, when she walks in and she introduces, like, you know, this is my boyfriend so-and-so, and this is her boy, his boyfriend so-and-so, you know, I love him, but we hate, you know, but I hate the other guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, them being in that relationship isn't what makes April uh, interesting at all. April's interesting because she's just an interesting character. Yeah, we just, we just binge-watched The Magicians, um, yeah. and, you know, again, like, just this wonderful, like, unexpected representation of so many different things on that show. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, there's, you know, a certain amount of polyamory and, and queer stuff that, again, was just, like, pieces of the narrative. Um, and and just always so exciting to, to get to see that, you know, on shows that I didn't expect to see it on. 
Yeah, like they should be they should be able to find a way to fit this stuff into more shows just because we exist, you know, queer folks, polyamorous folks, kinky folks, we exist. We're here like we we, we are your we are your neighbors and we don't always look like we don't always look like you think queer or queer or polyamorous or kinky folks are supposed to look. Well, you know, and even beyond the fact that um it, it, uh, look looking at traditional love triangle stories through a non-monogamous lens is like i have a quick fix for all this conflict um beyond that the, the story is just so well trodden that it's it's just tired like um yeah. the uh the the tension just always feels so contrived and um and it's like why don't you why don't you let this well fill up for a little while go to a different one because you know you you've been dipping into this one too many times it's not just it's not just the setup that's that that's contrived and well trodden but the rev, the resolutions are always so worthless they're, <laughs> they're, they're the worth the, the the resolutions of like love triangles and fiction they're never they're never solved through introspection or communication it's always one of them ends up, you know, like one of the love interests turns evil, or one of them dies, or one of them is a surprise sibling, or just some, <laughs> you know, somehow. one of them bonds with your unborn child. Yeah, you know uh. exactly. They they always find some some really ridiculous way to write themselves out of a love triangle that doesn't respect that that's that's irresponsible to the characters involved. It is very irresponsible because um, they they're they're essentially modeling a lack of agency on the person who's trying to make the choice uh and it's cowardice on the part of the writer who is like i don't want to pick between these two fan favorites so i'm just gonna write a story that that uh that makes the decision for the the character so that nobody hates the character for choosing the wrong one there was um what is that movie uh dodgeball where vince Vaughn is um Vince Vaughn is crushing on the on the lead actress whose name I I can't remember right now, but like at at the end of the movie they they win the they win the dodgeball tournament and lead actress goes off and makes out with her girlfriend, and Vince Vaughn is all downtrodden and he's like oh no I didn't realize you were a lesbian and she says I didn't know you know I never said I was a lesbian and then she makes out with Vince Vaughn too. <laughs> I'm like okay so we've got bis- we've got bisexuality we've got non monogamy. Uh, like consensual non-monogamy, but it's played as a salacious thing. It's played as a male fantasy thing, as yeah. opposed to a like this could have been a, this could have been a uh, an integral part of this of her character from the start. You know, this could have been something that made her interesting, other than her just being the female lead. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, you know, a thing that often happens in social media where a, a bisexual or pan person will will throw non-monogamous um, bi and pan people under the bus by, you know, like, like you know, uh, we don't want to have sex with you and your boyfriend and, you know, uh, uh, we're not slutty and none and none. And it's like, hey, some of us are, some, <laughs> you know, some of us do. And, yeah. uh, you, know, you, you know, you do not speak for everybody. That was that's that was something that came up uh in um poly role models where there was a point where somebody wrote into my blog, um like I had um 
I featured somebody in the interview series and it was a, a woman who was a bisexual and she was like, you know, she navigates her polyamory by way of avoiding that stigma. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm not greedy. I'm not selfish. I'm not, you know, confused. So I've got to navigate my polyamory in a way that like avoids that kind of stigma. And then a few months later, another woman wrote in for the interview series and was like, I am a bisexual. I am greedy and I am confused and I want to sleep with all the people. I'm a, you know, that's <laughs> like, there's a stigma there, but that that's who I am. And I lean all the way into it. Yeah, yeah, because as, as someone who, who you know, tends to be on the sluttier side of it and, it's, you know, enjoys being, like, gateway slut to uh, to couples sometimes and that sort of thing, like, it, um, the whole, whenever I do read the, you know, I don't want to sleep with you and your and your boyfriend or you and whoever, I'm just like, what, well, you know, do you want to give me their number? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a... Uh... It's a thing that has been um, that's been going on with with people that are that are outside of the the cultural mainstream, uh, you know, for time immemorial, which is to to essentially, um, you know, as you represent yourself, uh, to minimize the variances between you and the acceptable mainstream. So it's like you know, uh, I I'm you know don't worry i'm not i'm not a i'm not slutty i you know i just i I just like more genders than you do or you know don't worry um you know we're you know we're we're uh you know a lot of polyamorous people are like oh you know it's it's okay it's not about sex it's Mm -hmm. you know it's it's just it's just you know it's uh, it's relationships it's emotions while swingers do the opposite it's like you know oh it's okay we're we're monogamous just like you we just happen to have sex with with people you know and uh you know and so just the the temptation to um to kind of cut off the uh sort of the the things that that blur your identity further outside of the acceptable yeah it's like this part is palatable and you know and and same with you know queer people like oh we want to get married we want to you know have children and be these like you know nuclear families and stuff like that that like this you know we yeah we try to make the most palatable version of ourselves so that there's less backlash Yep, respectability politics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. A yeah. lot of queer people feel very betrayed by the sort of the the drive towards white picket fence, uh, almost republicanism in in uh, in the the uh, um, the gay community. Yeah, like like if someone if someone if someone says you know polyamory is not all about the sex, and it's like okay, cool, this is true, it isn't all about the sex, but I'm a fucking slut and I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but sex is part of it. And, you know, and I think, yeah, it's like trying to figure out, like, well, that's maybe your version of polyamory isn't that, but mine is. And, you know, this other person's is different again. And that, yeah, that it is all, it's all versions and it's all valid. You know, and, and, and I think that, um, that anytime you are trying to hew towards the, uh, the you know the mainstream acceptability um it's worth interrogating why so it's mm-hmm. like why do i feel the need to um to 
uh, to declare very vehemently that I'm not a slut and you shouldn't assume I'm a slut, you know, is, is that because there's some latent sex negativity going on is, you know, am I inadvertently slut shaming by coming out so strongly? You know, it's like, it's like the, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, as, as a straight dude, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, just wanting to make sure that everybody knows that you're not gay at yeah. any opportunity exactly exactly so i mean that it still comes it still comes from the same place like it still comes from that same that same phobic sort of spot and you know i i know i like to make sure that everyone knows like hey everything is valid this is where i'm at and you got to find a way to do that in a way that's not like still shitting on people no so you and dr liz have been doing um uh the unfuck your polyamory project do you want to tell yeah. me a little more about that um like dr liz and i we um before the pandemic uh we we got together and like it was it was sort of like we were, we were getting together just to hang out as friends and at some point we were like hey let's try to teach a class while we're together you know just just because we can and we ended up teaching a class in uh in portland where they were living at the time and it went well enough where we were like, well, we can do more of this. We can do more of this. And we decided to like actually put together a series of classes. Um, last year, we taught as a live as a live session um, six weeks of Unfuck Your Polyamory. Uh, we actually still sell those six weeks of content um, uh, on our website, unfuckyourpolyamory.com. Like it's a it's a six week webinar now, and we're We've been trying to get we've been trying to get it together to do a uh, a pro series course where instead of teaching like one on one level stuff or you know like the basics of you know metamores and kitchen table and where to meet and power dynamics and all of that stuff we've got a second uh, a pro level course where it's for service providers you know um so, you know uh, uh, mental health providers life coaches people who might have a polyamorous client base mm. and would like to serve them better because it, it's happened so many times where, you know, somebody's going to like couples counseling and then, and then the counselor's like, Oh, well you're non-monogamous. So why don't you just break up with all your other people and be monogamous and your problems will be solved when that's mm. really not what's what that's about. So we want to make sure that anybody who could have a polyamorous clientele, um, can take a course to allow them to serve their clientele better. And it's, um, we're still working on it. It's uh, there's, 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 there's still info about it on the website, unfuckyourpolyamory.com. And once we get that going, it'll have our continuing ed unit, uh, continuing ed units uh, available as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that sounds fantastic because, you know, even, uh, even providers who, um, you know, who would consider themselves to be accepting may not be very well informed about it and, you know, and not do a good job of supporting their clients in those things just, just because they, you know, they don't understand that community. They don't understand the dynamic of those relationship styles. Exactly. And that, that, that happens, it happens a lot. And it's, it's with the best of intentions sometimes where people will further marginalize polyamorous clients when really they were just trying to like understand or empathize. But you know, if you don't have the information, if you don't have the knowledge about it, sometimes you're not going to do your best job. Mm -hmm. 
So Kevin, uh, where can people uh, find you and find out more about what you're up to right now? Um, well, I'm I'm available on um, I'm available like uh, you know always Facebook uh, Facebook uh, at Poly Role Models. I'm at Poly Role Models on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my website is kevinapatterson.com and I try to I try to keep that updated with like with book stuff and once I start doing events again I'll try to keep it updated with that as well and then unfuckyourpolyamory.com is, is uh like if you're looking for the webinar or if you're uh, looking for information about the the pro course the webinar is always available for anybody who wants it um it's there and then the pro course once we get more information we're going to keep that updated as well well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I really appreciate you having me. It's good talking with you again. Yeah, we're such a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll run into each other at anything once things. <laughs> at at something once there are things again. Let's hope so. Yes, I do miss things. All right, thank you for joining us. Cat's novel, Waking Up Polyamorous, will soon be available as an audiobook, as soon as Audible approves it, which should be very soon. Until then, it's available on paperback and ebook. Cat's sexy memoir, Yelling in Pasties, The Wet Coast Confections of an Anxious Slut, is available in audiobook, ebook, and paperback. Go to Amazon.com or visit OnTheWetCoast.com for links to other marketplaces. Be like other awesome listeners by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platforms. It really makes a big difference in our visibility. And you can help us have more adventures to tell you about by contributing to our Patreon, patreon.com slash onthewetcoast. Follow us on Twitter at wetcoastcat, at seriousflick, at onthewetcoast. Email comments or questions to contact at onthewetcoast.com and go to onthewetcoast.com for cat's blog, toy reviews, and more. All right. It's, it's over. over. I was like, where's the trog door? It's over. I feel <laughs> like we haven't completed the podcast until that happens.